Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, 2 Kings chapter 17. Well, as we begin 2 Kings 17 today, we're going to read of the end of the northern kingdom of Israel and thus the beginning of the legend of the ten lost tribes of Israel. And at the conclusion of chapter 16, the subject was primarily the southern kingdom of Judah, their king Ahaz, and the invasion of Judah by an unholy military coalition of Israel and Syria. And while the invasion devastated Judah, the coalition was unable to force Ahaz from the throne, so he remained king over a barely sovereign Judah. And we saw that even though God rescued Judah and Ahaz, Ahaz preferred to thank the Syrian gods for his deliverance. And we learned that he had become so spiritually depraved that during the invasion he had sacrificed to the gods of Syria, the same ones that were attacking him. And so he decided that it was they who found favor with him and allowed he and his kingdom to survive. He completely ignored the fact that Isaiah had earlier brought him a prophetic oracle from Jehovah that he would not allow Israel and Syria to conquer and divide Judah between themselves. Thus, when the invasion ended, King Ahaz approached Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, with a proposition. He would give Tiglath-Pileser an enormous amount of silver, and in addition, he pledged that Judah would become a tribute-paying vassal to Assyria if Assyria would promise to protect Judah. And this type of arrangement allowed King Ahaz to retain his throne, but only as a puppet governor who was fully beholden to the king of Assyria. Judah's economy, and thus the common citizens, would suffer greatly under this arrangement as so much of Judah's wealth would be transferred to Assyria. As self-serving and as unfaithful as King Ahaz was the Lord allowed him to remain as king of Judah and to die peacefully, ending a 16-year reign. And the reason for this is that Ahaz was a descendant of David's royal line. And the Lord had promised that there would be a Davidic king forever. And that while he would punish David's royal descendants when they sinned, that nonetheless, the Lord would show them extraordinary mercy. Perhaps none more than the evil Ahaz benefited from that divine promise. So turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 421. We're going to read it all. It was in the twelfth year of Ahaz king of Judah that Hoshea the son of Elah began his reign over Israel and Shomron, Samaria. 
He ruled for nine years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, although he wasn't as bad as the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Asher, advanced against Hosea, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Asher found that Hosea was conspiring against him. He had sent messengers to So, the king of Egypt, and not paid his tribute to the king of Asher, as he had previously done every year. For this the king of Asher imprisoned him, putting him in chains. Then the king of Asher invaded all of the land, advanced on Samaria, put it under siege for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Asher, Assyria, captured Samaria. He carried Israel away captive to Assyria, resettling them in Halah, in Havor, on the Gozan River, and in the cities of the Medes. This came about because the people of Israel had sinned against Adonai their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt out from under the domination of Pharaoh king of Egypt they feared other gods they lived by the customs of the nations that Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel and by those kings of Israel the people of Israel secretly did things that were not right according to Adonai their God they built high places for themselves wherever they lived from the watchtower to the fortified city they set up standing stones and sacred places poles for themselves on any high hill and under any green tree. Then they would make offerings on all the high places like the nations Adonai had expelled ahead of them and would do wicked things to provoke the anger of Adonai. And moreover they served idols, something Adonai had expressly told them not to do. Adonai had warned Israel and Judah in advance through every prophet and seer, Turn from your evil ways. Obey my commandments and regulations in accordance with the entire Torah, which I ordered your ancestors to keep, which I sent to you through my servants the prophets. Nevertheless, they refused to listen. But they made themselves as stubborn as their ancestors, who did not put their trust in Adonai their God. Thus they rejected his laws, his covenant which he had made with their ancestors, and the solemn warnings he had given them. Instead they pursued worthless things and became worthless themselves, imitating the nations around them, whom Adonai had ordered them not to emulate. They abandoned all the mitzvot, commandments of Adonai their God. They made cast metal images for themselves, two calves. They made an Asherah. They worshipped the whole army of heaven. They served Baal. They had their sons and daughters pass through fire as a sacrifice. They used divination and magic spells. They gave themselves over to do what was evil from Adonai's perspective, thereby provoking him, so that Adonai, by now very angry with Israel, removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah alone. However, neither did Judah obey the commandments of Adonai their God. Rather, they lived according to the customs of Israel. Yes, Adonai came to despise all the descendants of Israel. He caused them trouble. He handed them over to plunderers until finally he threw them out of his sight. He tore Israel away from the house of David. They made Jeroboam the son of Nevat king, and Jeroboam drew Israel away from following Adonai and made them commit a great sin. The people of Israel followed the example of all the sins that Jeroboam had committed and did not turn away from them until Adonai removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said he would through all his servants, the prophets. Thus Israel was carried away captive from their own land to Assyria, and it remains so to this day. The king of 
Asher brought people from Babel, Kuta, Ava, Hamat, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Shomron, in places of the in, in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria. They lived in its cities, and when they first came and lived there, they did not fear Adonai. Therefore, Adonai sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they said to the king of Asher, "The nations you carried away and settled in the cities of Samaria aren't familiar with the rules for worshiping the God of the land." Therefore he has sent lions among them and they are there killing them because they are not familiar with the rules for worshipping the God of the land. And in response the king of Assyria gave this order. Take back one of the priests you brought from there. Have him go and live there and have him teach them the rules for worshipping the God of the land. So one of the priests they had carried away captive from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and he taught them how they should fear Adonai. Nevertheless, every nation made gods of their own, put them in the temples on the high places which the uh, Sumerians had made, every nation in the cities where they lived. Thus the people from Bavel made Sukkot Benot, those from Kutah made Nergal, those from Hamat made Ashma, the Avim made Nifchaz and Tartak, and the Safarim burned up their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of the Sepharvaim. So they feared Adonai. While at the same time they appointed for themselves priests from among themselves to preside at the high places, and they would sacrifice for them in the temples on the high places, they both feared Adonai and served their own gods in the manner customary among the nations from which they had been taken. To this day they continue to follow their former pagan customs. They don't fear Adonai. They don't follow the regulations and rulings, Torah or commandments from which Adonai ordered the descendants of Jacob to whom he gave the name Israel, with whom Adonai had made a covenant and charged them, do not fear other gods, don't bow down to them, serve or sacrifice to them. On the contrary, you are to fear Adonai who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and outstretched arm. Worship him. Sacrifice to him. You are to observe forever the laws, rulings, Torah, and commandments which he wrote for you. You are not to fear other gods. You are not to forget the covenant I made with you. No, you must not fear other gods, but you must fear Adonai your God, then he will rescue you from the power of all of your enemies. However, they didn't listen. They followed their old pagan practices. So these nations mixed fearing Adonai was serving their carved idols, likewise their children. And to this day their descendants do the same as their ancestors did. <clears throat> what an indictment. <coughs> king Hosea is crowned king of Israel. And he will become infamous as the king who presided over the extinction of the northern kingdom. King Hosea is Israel's last king. He came into power during King Ahaz of Judah's twelfth year of reigning over his people. Thus there was a four year period of time when these two kings ruled their respective kingdoms simultaneously. Hosea would rule over Israel for five more years after Ahaz died, giving Hosea total time in office of nine years. Now interestingly, if we look back to 2 Kings chapter 15, we find that it was 
eight years before Hosea officially became king of Israel that he had assassinated the then sitting king of Israel, Pekah. And while there is no biblical or historical record that explains this long lag in time, one would think that Hosea would have immediately become king after Pekah's death, we can only say in general that apparently it wasn't politically possible for Hosea to assume the throne at that time. Thus, he, he must have had to gain the loyalty of enough influential leaders of Israel before he could formally sit on Israel's throne. But we also read in 2 Kings 17.2 that the Lord saw Hosea as wicked but much less so than his predecessors. Why would God see him as less wicked? What went on that seemed to increase his favor among his people? I believe that Second Chronicles 30 answers that question for us. So, turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 30. We're going to read the whole chapter because, as we've discussed, in order to understand the time of the kings, we must use the book of the kings, book of chronicles, and some of the books of the prophets all together in order to get a more complete picture. So, turn to Second Chronicles 30, which is, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 1213. 1213. Then Hiskiel, Hezekiah, sent to all Israel and Judah, and he wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, summoning them to the house of Adonai in Jerusalem to keep the Passover, the Passover to Adonai, the God of Israel. For the king, his officials, and the entire, and the entire Jerusalem community had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to observe it at the proper time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number. Also, the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The idea had seemed right to the king and to the whole community, so they issued a decree that it should be proclaimed throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to keep the Pesach to Adonai, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. For only a few of them had been observing it is prescribed. So runners went with letters from the king and his officers throughout all Israel and Judah. They conveyed the king's order. People of Israel, turn back to Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he will return those of you who remain who escaped capture by the kings of Asher. Don't be like your ancestors or like your kinsmen who sinned against Adonai, the God of their ancestors, with the result that he allowed them to become an object of horror, as you see. Don't be stiff-necked now, as your ancestors were. Instead, yield yourselves to Adonai. Enter a sanctuary which he has made holy forever. Serve Adonai your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. For if you turn back to Adonai, your kinsmen and children will find that those who took them captive will have compassion on them and they will come back to, his, to this land. Adonai your God is compassionate and merciful. He'll not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So the runners passed from city to city throughout the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But the people laughed at them, made fun of them. Nevertheless, some 
from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun were humble enough to come to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was at work, uniting their hearts to do what the king and the leaders had ordered in accordance with the word of God. Thus many people assembled in Jerusalem to keep the festival of Matzah in the second month. A huge crowd. First they set about removing the altars that were in Jerusalem. They also removed all the altars for incense and threw them in the Wadi Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Pesach lamb on the 14th day. Ashamed of themselves, the Kohanim, the Levites, had consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of Adonai. Now they stood at their stations. As prescribed in the Torah of Moses, the man of God, the priests splashed the blood given to them by the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites were responsible for slaughtering the Passover lambs and consecrating them to Adonai on behalf of everyone who wasn't clean. For a large number of the people, especially from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, but ate the Passover lamb anyway, despite what's written. For Hiskiah, Hezekiah, had prayed for them. May Adonai, who is good, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God. Adonai the God of his ancestors, even if he hasn't undergone the purification prescribed in connection with holy things. Adonai heard Hezekiah and he healed the people. The people of Israel there in Jerusalem observed the festival of matzah, of unleavened bread, for seven days with great joy. While every day the Levites and the priests praise Adonai, singing to Adonai with the accompaniment of loud instruments. His kiao spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who were well skilled in the service of Adonai. Thus they ate throughout the festival for the seven days, offering sacrifices of peace offerings, giving thanks to Adonai, the God of their ancestors. Then the whole assembly decided to celebrate for yet another seven days, and they observed those seven days too with joy. For Hezekiah king of Judah gave the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep for offerings, while the leaders gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And great numbers of priests consecrated themselves. All the people who had assembled from Judah rejoiced as did the priests and the Levites, those assembled assembled from Israel, and the foreigners who had come from the territory of Israel or who lived in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like it in Jerusalem. Then the priests who were Levites stood up and blessed the people. Adonai heard their voice, and their prayer came up to the holy place where he lives in heaven. The time frame for what we just read is that King Ahaz of Judah has died. His son Hezekiah, his Kiel, is now ruling. And Hezekiah, who sought to restore some piety to the kingdom of Judah after this wrecking ball his father took to Judah's morality and spirituality, he called for all the tribes of Jacob to set aside their differences come together for the springtime trio a biblical feast that begins with Passover since that would mean gathering together at the temple in Jerusalem and that the Torah rituals would, would be presided over by a Levitical high priest it seemed altogether impossible for this to happen since for 200 years 
residents of Israel, the northern kingdom, had been forbidden from traveling to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship. In fact, military outposts had been established by Israel's kings on the highways to Judah from Israel to present to, uh, rather to prevent the ten tribes from even going to Jerusalem. Remember that at this time Israel had established its own state-run religious cult, complete with a priesthood, graven images of a golden calf god. This priesthood was composed primarily of non-Levites. They invented their own rituals and rules. But ironically, they insisted that they were worshipping and that the golden calves represented Jehovah, God of Israel. So there were essentially two separate and distinct groups of people who had little use for each other and who although they were Hebrews descended from Jacob they had established competing religions for the purpose of worshiping Jehovah God of Israel the original Torah based religion was represented by the Jerusalem temple and priesthood while the newer religion of the kingdom of Israel was based mostly on newly created doctrines and traditions and the leaders of this new religion thought themselves as the better and the replacement religion for the original one. A virtual ring of military forts kept those citizens of Israel who wanted to stay connected to the Torah to the Jerusalem temple, to the Levitical priesthood, from doing so. Does this kind of sound familiar to you? <clears throat> of course it does. Because that's what would happen again almost a thousand years into the future when a group of Gentiles decided that the Torah-based religion of the Jews ought to be replaced with a newer religion based on new traditions and doctrines. This new religion called Christianity said that while it still worshipped the God of Israel, the new Rome-based religion also rejected, as had the northern kingdom of Israel, the Torah, the original Hebrew scriptures, all the temple symbolism and relevance. A whole new set of Gentile-created icons and symbols and even newer scripture were substituted for the old ways. High barriers were erected between the former religion and the new one and the new religion's leadership promised excommunication to any Christian who even dared to look at the Torah or the Old Testament. In time, during a period historians call the Inquisition, Believers who read any scripture at all were burned at the stake. Those who read any part of the Old Testament especially were banished or they were killed for being Judaizers. Or worse, they were suspected of converting to Judaism. So King Hezekiah of Judah realized that the only path to reconciliation 
among the twelve tribes, the only hope for regaining God's favor was for all Israel to return to their common Hebrew roots. They had to swallow their pride. They had to put down their traditions and their icons. They had to knock down this wall of separation. They had to gather together under the banner of God's Torah. They needed to go back to knowing, to being obedient to the Holy Scriptures, to the commandments of God. They needed to set aside their man-made doctrines and rules and observances. Thus, King Hezekiah invited all Israel to come for Passover. And apparently King Hosea of Israel saw the merit in this and he allowed those among his people of the northern kingdom who wanted to come to journey to the temple and observe the biblical feasts. Thus God saw him as far less wicked than than the previous kings of Israel. I think it's fascinating that the righteous king of Judah, King Hezekiah, saw that the biblical feasts represented the best and the first step on a long and uneven road back to a reunion of God worshipers and to the proper worship of Jehovah. It reopened a closed but necessary door. And it is also interesting that in modern times the first steps taken by Christ's church back towards obedience to the Lord and to His Word has been a reinstitution by those of the Hebrew Roots movement of those same biblical feasts. And that is because in these feasts is the pattern of redemption. It's an illustration of the actual mission of our Messiah Yeshua to save all who would be saved. Well, back to 2 Kings 17. Verse 3 notes a change of kings in Assyria. Upon Tiglath-Pileser's death, his son, Shalmaneser, began to rule. Now, when Tiglath-Pileser died, there was a brief period of a power vacuum in Assyria, and King Hosea used it as an opportunity to try and free Israel from underneath Assyria's yoke. He failed. Once Shalmaneser was able to gain the throne, he quickly moved to punish Hosea and Israel for their rebellion. And by the way, soon we're going to hear about yet another king of Assyria named Sargon. Sargon was Shalmaneser's brother. And it was probably the struggle for power between them immediately following their father Tiglath-Pileser's death that caused this brief period of unrest in Assyria such that Hosea thought it might be Israel's ticket to independence. However, about four years after Shalmaneser became king of Assyria, Sargon assumed a co-kingship with him that lasted for only a few months. Then Sargon became the sole king of Assyria when Shalmaneser died during the siege of Samaria. Now, whether he was murdered or died of battle wounds is is unclear. But Hosea was able to hang on to his throne as king of Israel by agreeing to become a tribute-paying vassal 
to Shalmaneser. But in verse 4, we find that Hosea attempted to enlist Egypt's help to escape Assyria's hold on him, and Hosea also refused to send the agreed to tribute to Assyria. King Hosea was arrested, he was held prisoner, and the vassal arrangement was cancelled. And then, the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, was invaded and taken by the Assyrian forces. The year was either 722 or 723 B.C. With the fall of Samaria, it was the end of Israel. It took three years of siege for Shalmaneser to finally take Samaria. But when he did, he deported the ten tribes of Israel from their land and he scattered them all over the 120 nations and kingdoms that now formed the enormous and unprecedented Assyrian Empire. Now let me be clear on something. When I say the ten tribes of the north, that isn't technically correct. Because two and a half of those tribes, um, uh, Gad, Reuben, and half of the clans that formed the tribe of Manasseh, were not living in the north, they were living in the east across the Jordan River in the so-called Transjordan. This was the same place they had occupied since the days of Joshua and Moses. In fact, Assyrian records show that it was the Transjordanian tribes that were exiled in, uh, first before the remaining seven and a half tribes who actually inhabited the northern kingdom of Israel were conquered. It's only that all those tribes are lumped together as one group the ten tribes, because the Transjordanian tribes allied themselves with Israel as opposed to with Judah. Well, anyway, Hosea's attempt to lure Egypt into a war with Assyria didn't work. The current pharaoh of Egypt was named Sevi or Sava. The name So that we find in our Bibles is, is just a very bad attempt at a phonetic spelling. And he was too wise to be convinced by his ambassadors or by Israel's king that there was any benefit for Egypt in helping Hosea take on powerful Assyria. Now as an aside, it's interesting to note that this pharaoh was an Ethiopian. He wasn't a true hereditary Egyptian. He was the first pharaoh of the 25th dynasty which was an Ethiopian dynasty. Egypt thrived under Sevi. And it became a very strong, generally peace-loving nation under him. In any case, Shalmaneser found out about this attempt by Hosea to rebel, probably from Egypt, who didn't want any part of this alliance or conflict. And this was what finally led to checkmate and exile for Israel. Now, I find it ironic, but probably more instructive, to remember God's warning to Israel about any thought of them dealing with Egypt. Back in Deuteronomy 17.16, he says, However, he is not, speaking of any future king, possible future king of Israel, however, he's not to acquire many horses for himself or have the people return to Egypt to obtain more horses inasmuch as Adonai told you to never go back that way again. After exhausting all possibilities, King Hosea of Israel turned to the one place that although it did have power, was the epitome of the wrong place for God's people to ever seek help. Egypt. 
Egypt was the living symbol of sin and servitude to an evil master. Egypt even gained the status of a standard biblical metaphor that represented all that was anti-God. In our New Testaments and in modern Christianese, Egypt is is symbolic of the devil and of his kingdom. And so, after God redeemed Israel from Egypt, it was unthinkable that they would actually turn back to God's enemy, Egypt, to seek friendship and deliverance. And as verse 7 points out, it was no coincidence that by King Hosea turning to Egypt, it immediately led to the king of Assyria declaring Israel as its enemy and then destroying them as a nation and exiling them from the promised land. It's all coupled together. Verses 7 through 23 now provide us a sickening, a heartbreaking testimony against Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, by the Lord. These are reminiscent of Messiah's revelation warning to the seven churches. And just like so much of Christ's church is in today in denial of the many characteristics that we display that Yeshua laments and He rails against in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, so were most of the people of Israel in denial against God's warnings and all the charges that he leveled against them. Let's go through these one by one. In verse 7, the issue is faithfulness. The first commandment Moses is given on Mount Sinai is that God rescued them from Egypt. That is, the Ten Commandments, number one commandment is, it was Jehovah who liberated Israel from Egypt. And then there's later on some other regulations and rulings that make it clear that Israel must never try to reverse their salvation history by seeking out Egypt for help. So the first indictment against the ten tribes is that they ignored the miracle of the Exodus. They renounced the grace of their redemption by Jehovah. And instead they chose to ally with their formal evil taskmaster. Well, verse 8 says that Israel walked in the ways of the very people and nations that God drove out of Canaan due to their wickedness. Thus, since Israel adopted their evil ways, it was only just that Israel would be driven out of the land, as were the Canaanites. Next is one that I think I'll go to my grave imploring my fellow church members to repent about. We have imputed to God characteristics that are not biblical. And we have denied other characteristics about Him that are biblical. We often tell one another that God is only love, thus we commit idolatry just as surely as the Israelites did. Oh, one of God's many characteristics is love. No doubt. But He's also wrathful. He is judge. He is slow to anger, but He gets angry. He will take vengeance. He demands our obedience. He will punish His own when we trespass because it's just. And these are only the beginning of God's biblically defined characteristics. God didn't change a 
upon the turning of our Bibles from the Old Testament to the book of Matthew. Further, verse 9 says that essentially Israel believed that there were other gods. And perhaps it was that those gods cared more about Israel than Jehovah. So they built altars to those other gods all over God's kingdom land. They worshipped them. They relied on those other gods. Then following that in verse 11, in addition, they burned incense to those gods, meaning they prayed to those gods. Incense was symbolic in all Middle Eastern cultures, Israel included, of prayers and petitions being lifted up to the gods. And it's not that they didn't know better. God told them specifically in the law of Moses not to do this. But so much time had passed since the days of Moses because they had created a new religion for themselves, the golden calf religion, that they still insisted was honoring the God of Israel. Well, the leaders and people of Israel saw those old laws and commandments of Moses as no longer relevant to them. Verse 13 explains why Israel and Judah are without excuse before him and cannot ever say they didn't know what they were doing wrong. They did wrong because they wanted to do wrong. God says that contrary to the belief that he abandoned them, they abandoned him. He sent prophet after prophet warning his people of their sin and apostasy, pleading with his people to pay attention to him, to return to the Torah, Return to proper worship of Him, but to no avail. Every argument and pleading was rationalized away. What did this lead to? Verse 15 says that eventually Israel rejected God's laws and His commandments. And they denied His covenants with their forefathers. And so they refused to follow through with the terms and conditions of those covenants. And among the many sins of the ten tribes was they decided that they would determine for themselves which commandments they'd follow, which ones they'd abolish, which ones they'd modify to suit their preferences. And as a consequence, they took up worthless rituals, often in the name of worshiping Jehovah. And they regularly directed their worthless rituals to worthless idols. And as a result, they had made themselves worthless. Verse 16 continues with God God handing down His verdict. Israel simply stopped being obedient. They thought obedience was a thing of the past. So they thought it was okay if they did things God's Torah told them not to do. Chief among those, making graven images. They adopted the horrific practice of human sacrifice. They offered their sons and daughters as burnt offerings to these worthless idols. In fact, says verse 17, they dedicated themselves to doing things that they thought were good, but in fact were terribly evil in God's eyes. Verse 18 is frightening because notice it says that God didn't only exile Israel from their land but from His presence. He put a distance between them and Him. 
such that they couldn't experience His holiness. Thus He removed all the ten tribes from their land and only Judah remained, but only for now. It's noted that Judah was not walking in God's ways and instead they had taken up the same ways as their brother kingdom Israel. A big uh uh-oh. Watch out. Verse 20 gives us the progression that resulted in the ten tribes' exile. First, God rejected Israel because of their sins. Second, God oppressed Israel with drought and with other disasters. Third, God delivered them into the hands of foreign invaders. And fourth, in the end, He cast them away. He exiled them. And then in verse 21, we have a passage that is critical to explaining God's actions. Israel seceded. Catch this. Israel seceded from the kingdom of God. They broke away after Solomon's death, which operated by design only under a Davidic king. That's to say that the kingdom of God on earth is only the kingdom of God when a member of the royal line of David is ruling over it. And that principle applied then, and it still applies to this very day, and it will forever. If anyone else than Yeshua of Nazareth is your Lord and King, then you live in some other kingdom than the kingdom of God. And the chief characteristic of this Yeshua must be that he is a Davidic king. And those who want to be God's people must recognize and submit to Him. They must see Him and understand He is a descendant of David, who by the way is a Jew, or they live in some other kingdom than God's kingdom, no matter what they may be telling themselves. When the people of the newly formed Northern Kingdom of Israel crowned Jeroboam as their king. They did so without God's sanction. When they did this, they repudiated the divinely ordained line of David as the only authorized line of kings for the Hebrews. Jeroboam took it a step further. And he not only repudiated the line of David, but he also repudiated the temple. He repudiated the Levitical priesthood and he even repudiated God's Torah which the Lord says in verse 21 was a great sin. Verses 22 and 23 explain that the people of Israel eventually decided to accept the ways of Jeroboam and then in time they refused to turn away from those ways even though God sent them prophets telling them that they had strayed. The rabbis point out that even when King Hosea took down the sentries and the forts that had been blocking the ten tribes from going to Jerusalem for the biblical festivals, and that they had the chance to rejoin their Judean brothers in proper worship and celebration, the majority chose not to. Because they had become so comfortable in their new ways and traditions and observances. Again, we have an exact parallel to that situation within modern Christianity. There were centuries when Israel did not exist and Jews were little more than an afterthought for the church. 
At most, Jews were a political problem, not so much a religious issue. The church leadership had little opposition. All knowledge of the Bible was locked up in Christian seminaries dispensed to a relative few. So the average churchgoer only knew whatever the leadership taught them. But with the return of Israel as a nation, with the advent of the internet, suddenly the centrality of Israel and the Jewish people has become apparent. Knowledge of the Bible is easily accessible to everyone, almost free. The error and wrongness of replacement theology has been exposed. Yet, much, if not most, of the church refuses to let go of it. Why? Because so many of our cherished doctrines are predicated upon it. But the Lord is turning the pressure up on us, His worshipers, even more. Millions of believers around the globe now understand that the Torah and the Old Testament remain relevant. Obedience to God's commandments wasn't abolished. And that the many man-made customs, the many observances created by the church leadership over the centuries, so many of them founded upon and steeped in pagan custom, put in place to counter anything that seemed too Jewish, or that they were a product of the Hebrew Old Testament, well, they had to be uh, retired. They had to be replaced with the ways that God teaches us in His Word. This revelation, this call to return to God's prescribed way is, I believe, the truest definition of revival. This is revival. This is what King Hezekiah was trying for. This is what Seed of Abraham Ministries and many, many other Hebrew Roots Ministries are trying for, admittedly imperfectly. Now we're going to continue next time with this pivotal chapter in 2 Kings 17 that tells us the story of the end of the ten tribes of Israel and their being cast away into the Assyrian exile that, by the way, is right before our eyes coming to a close.